Hi, I'm Rosanna Arquette, and you're here listening to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. This is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a true Renaissance man. He's an actor, producer, best-selling author, and the writer, director, and creator of long-running TV series, critically acclaimed stage productions, and popular feature films. While still in college, he joined the Cambridge Circus Review and was soon performing alongside future comedy icons John Cleese and Graham Chapman. And at the tender age of 21, made his Broadway debut and his television debut on The Ed Sullivan Show, a broadcast seen by an impressive 70 million people. As an actor, he appeared in the original London production of Fiddler on the Roof, as well as British series such as Doctor in the House and Twice a Fortnight, with future Python Terry Jones and Michael Palin. He also scripted dozens of hours of television comedy along with writing partner Anthony Jay. Created the much beloved BBC series Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. He directed dozens of award winning stage productions including Anna Christie, Arms and the Man, Three Men on a Horse, and The Glass Menagerie, earning the approval of Tennessee Williams himself. He's also directed 10 feature films, including Clue, The Whole Nine Yards, The Distinguished Gentleman, Greedy, Nuns on the Run, Sergeant Bilko, trial and error, and of course, one of the most successful and off-quoted comedies of the last 50 years, My Cousin Vinny. His new novel is called Samaritans, a satirical look at the state of the U.S. healthcare system, which the London Times called a book George Orwell would be proud of. Please welcome a comedy giant on both sides of the pond and a man who claims there's no such thing as bad taste when it comes to comedy. He obviously has never seen me. The multi-talented Jonathan Lynn. Hello. 
Hi. I'm not sure that I should stay after all that. I'm not sure I can live up to that tremendous introduction. You've done a lot of stuff, Jonathan. I have. I've done a lot of stuff. A prolific fellow. Well, it keeps you off the streets. Well, I'll say. I I think one of the things that that Gilbert would like to get out of the way, uh, if I may, Gilbert. Yes. (laughs) I think he was fascinated by the fact that you once played Adolf Hitler. Yes. (laughs) Well, I did. I was in a... It was actually shortly after I played Mottel the Tailor and Fiddler on the Roof, which um, my all my family were very proud of because I'm Jewish, and uh, and it was an enormous hit. And then shortly after that, I was cast as Hitler in a play called The Comedy of the Changing Years at the Royal Court Theatre, and um, none of them came to see that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very difficult part to play because uh, there was one there was a scene a four-minute-long speech in German, which I didn't speak. Uh, so I had to learn it. I, I had had it translated for me, of course, so I knew. But it was his will that he dictated in the bunker before he died. And and um, and I had to memorize this four minutes of German. And at the Royal Court, it's the kind of place where the audience would would understand it, some members of the audience. So that was a big feat of learning. That took me about six weeks to learn. So the audience would know if you were mispronouncing every word. Well, some of them would. I mean, most of them would, would be like <laughs> me and wouldn't know at all. But um, there would be some people there, yes, who spoke German. Yes, it's a very educated audience at the Royal Court Theatre. Safe to say the family didn't approve? <laughs> well, I don't know if they approved or not. They just kind of averted their eyes. <laughs> he didn't show um, up. That, the real problem I had was that um, it was about Hitler's last days and uh, so he was dying and he was a drug addict and he was in terrible shape and um, and of course I didn't present him in a good light but on the other hand you have to believe in the character that you're playing and I was really soundly criticized by Milton Shulman who's the Jewish critic of the evening standards at the time who accused me of giving a sympathetic performance <laughs> <laughs> I think that kept the family away. So, so Hitler was not a popular person in your household. No, he he wasn't. Not in and uh, not in yours, I expect. Either. <laughs> but didn't you play Hitler in that Highway to Hell movie? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you oh, have so both something in common. We both played Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> it, it 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 in that movie, the credits are funny. Gilbert Gottfried as Hitler more than the scene. I see. The scene wasn't funny <laughs> in, at all. In 220 guests, I believe John is the first person other than yourself I, to p- portray the Fuhrer. It's a thrill. <laughs> 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 now, if we can only get Anthony Hopkins on. <laughs> yeah, right. Or, uh, yeah. Who's, who's the guy in Downfall? Bruno Gans? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And great... and Mo from the three exactly series. of course and all the people and the producers and uh, that's right that's and right. I got to get my most important subject out of the way too. Uh, where you come from in England, Beth, you were the only Jewish boy. As far well as far as I know, yes. Um, my, my my father, who was very perceptive about politics, though not about much else, I think. Um, Realized in 1936. Um, oh, excuse me, That's my phone right. just rang, and I've got to turn it. I off. love that it's the Morricone. Yeah. Oh, good the bad. Yeah, yeah, the good the bad. Sorry about that. He's got a Morricone <laughs> ringtone. Um, <laughs> um, 
My father was very perceptive about politics. And in 1936, he realized there was going to be a, a war with Germany, um, which um, most people in Britain were being rather ostrich-like about and pretending that there wasn't. And then uh, this went on till the late 30s, well after the Munich Agreement with Chamberlain and every, everything. Anyway, um, he knew there was going to be a war. There were only two people, apparently, who seemed to know, my father and Mr. Churchill, but... Nobody took any notice of my father. They didn't take much notice of Mr. Churchill at the time. So um, he moved his family to Bath, which he thought was um, a nice small town. He was a doctor in a nice small town where he could practice, you know, and we wouldn't be bombed. And I say we, I wasn't born yet. But in fact, I was born during a bombing raid and um, the house was... Not exactly hit. There was a direct hit for the house next door and a lot of damage in Ooh. our house. And so he miscalculated. So stuff. I'm afraid he miscalculated. Yeah. What he didn't know was that the Admiralty had moved to Bath and they were planning D-Day there. So they'd moved out of London too. So anyway, that's, that's why we happen to be in Bath. And it's a very waspy area. And uh, a number of Jewish refugees arrived from Germany and Austria and Czechoslovakia slightly before the war and afterwards, but they were all older and didn't seem to have kids. So, yes, I think I was probably the only Jewish boy in the town, certainly the only one at my school. Interesting. Yeah. And you were not the only Jewish boy in Coney Island. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) His dad ran a hardware store. Yeah? Yeah, we lived upstairs from the hardware store. Yeah. Yeah. My dad lived above his... What we call the surgery, what you call an office here. But by the time I was born, they'd moved to a little house in a slightly more posh area of the town. I get the sense from reading about you, Jonathan, that your parents, did they want a political career for you? They they seemed to encourage that, at least when you got to school. Well, my they father, paid for you to join the debate society. Yeah, and, well, at Cambridge, yeah. My father was a, was a political junkie. Uh-huh. And so I grew up really listening to the news all the time. I mean, the nine o'clock news on the way to school, in the car, and the and you know, and the one o'clock news at lunchtime if if it was the holidays, and and the six o'clock news, and then the nine o'clock news on TV. <laughs> he, he was obsessed with it, so I knew a lot mm-hmm. about it. And then um, my uncle, who you, you mentioned before the broadcast, was yeah. a famous Israeli diplomat and politician, and he had been secretary the of legendary the, Abba Iban. Yes, and he had been the secretary of what's called the union at Cambridge, which isn't a trade union, it's a, it's a debating society. It's the debating society. And um, they wanted me to um, to be equally successful there. But I went along. I joined. And they actually got me, bought me a membership, which I hadn't particularly wanted. And I went along and I saw all these 20-year-olds, they were all making these puerile and very pompous speeches and I thought, these people think that they're on the front bench of the Conservative Party in the cabinet, you know. And and uh, 20 years later, they were, which was horrifying. <laughs> disturbing. Uh, disturbing and unchanged. <laughs> but you realized um, that you could make a, a, a bigger contribution to society. I realized How? that what I had to do was make fun of them. Right. Um. <laughs> so so it it kind of scared you when you saw, like... This this is who are important people. 
yes, this is what they were like 20 years ago, and this is what they're going to be. These are going to be the important people who run the country in 20 years. Gosh, what a horrible <laughs> thought. And, uh, you know, one of them became leader of the Tory party and another one became was in the cabinet and... Uh, and and they would they would they were just as pompous and self important in government as they were when they were twenty years old at Cambridge. But they gave you a gift. They inspired you they to insp- be funny. They, they inspired me with with contempt and right. the desire <laughs> right. and the desire to ridicule them right. on every possible occasion. It, yes, it's yeah. funny because if you don't experience that, you know, it's it's just like people in showbiz. I used to think if someone was in show business, they were talented. <laughs> you or just else assumed they it. Wouldn't be right in show. And and if you saw a politician, you'd go, "Well, they have to be really intelligent people." Yes, uh, absolutely not. In my experience. <laughs> were you a comedy? I think they're fan? the ra- they're a rarity. I think. Well, sorry. <laughs> were you a comedy fan as a kid, or was this sort of I, the, I was the, a, the I was, turning point? I was. I I watched. There were some great TV comedy shows in England when I was a kid. There were some great comedians who your audience here probably wouldn't know, like Tony Hancock and Tommy Cooper and various other people who were names. wonderful. And I also watched every week, I watched um, the Phil Silver show and I watched I Married Joan. Oh, with so Joan American Davis. shows were coming over oh, on yes. the BBC. And, uh, um, Oh, you know the uh, Lucy. I love and, Lucy. I love Lucy was on. Yeah. I didn't see that as often. For some reason, that wasn't on quite as much. Jack Benny, did you? Oh, get Jack Burns Benny. In ah, I yeah. never missed Jack Benny. Okay, <laughs> great, wonderful. I later saw him at the Palladium. But alone among my school friends, when I say school friends, they weren't really friends. School acquaintances. Uh huh. <laughs> um. <laughs> um they, uh, I, I knew that who wrote all these programs. I actually read the credits. Oh, you're a credit reader. I, I saw that. Phil Silver's show was written by Neil Simon and Woody Allen, and I remembered their names. And and um, and the court jester, which I thought was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Oh, the Danny Kaye picture? The Danny Kaye. Yeah. And that was written by Norman Panamar and Melvin, Melvin Frank. Frank, and I remembered those names. I didn't know who they were, but I thought, you know, these people are funny. And I thought, how do you do that? How, do, what is, how can you actually just be funny on command? And... It was a great mystery to me, and I thought, I've got to try and figure that out one day. So you, th- this is where I don't understand. you. Went, but you went to law school. I did. Okay. Well, my parents didn't want me to be an actor or, or anything like that. You know, I mean, my son, the doctor, right? And I refused right. to be a doctor. And they say a, uh, a lawyer is a Jewish boy who can't stand the sight of blood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, so I studied law. But then... When I left Cambridge, the, the week I left, I was offered uh, this incredible job um, as an actor on Broadway. So, with the Cambridge, uh, well, well, circus. yes, the, the rev- this was a review that had been done at Cambridge with John Cleese and Graham Chapman and some other people who you might not know Bill here. Audie. Bill Oddie, oh, you know Bill yeah, Oddie? Sure. and Tim Brooke Taylor. I yeah, don't sure. know if you know them. Well, anyway, they were all in it, and um, and I was in the band, and it it was taken to the West End of London. It was such a success, got such good reviews at Cambridge. that it, it, That's a bit like the Second City happened uh-huh. here or Nichols and May from yeah. Chicago. Um, in those days, it seemed that if you were sufficiently funny as a student, you wouldn't get into the West End, and that's what happened. Um, and um, I was in the band, um, 
And then after three months, I had to leave the band to go back to Cambridge because I was a year behind all of those guys. I see. And the, the week I graduated, uh, I got a phone call saying, do you want to come to Broadway with Cambridge Circus? And I said, well, they won't allow me to. There's a musicians' union. And they said, no, in the cast. So, <laughs> sure. Suddenly you're an actor suddenly on I the was Broadway stage. Yeah, I mean, I'd, been, I'd done some acting at university, you know, but suddenly I was an actor. For you trivia experts out there... <coughs> who was going to be on my last season of Saturday Night Live oh, yeah. as the host was Graham, Graham Chapman. Chapman. Uh, Gilbert we, was in the replacement cast after the yeah, original yeah. SNL we cast. We were mercifully fired before. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he, re, he was in the replacement cast that replaced Aykroyd and Chevy oh, and right. Gilder, the yeah. original seven. He was yeah. hopeless. But, but Chapman was supposed to host, and did he he not he didn't do it? He, he didn't, didn't host? do it, or he didn't show uh, up? Or? He went there. Uh, we, like, sort of did some mini rehearsals, you know, trying to pick bits for him to do. And then he was there for a day. Next day, we found out the producer was fired, and in a few days, the rest of us fired. Showbiz. I see. But Graham might not have been very good at that anyway, because he was... Uh, he was very good at doing his own material, but he wasn't—he wasn't adaptable. You know, he was—he had his own persona, and he just did what he did. And um, also, he was very drunk most of the time. <laughs> I loved your description in the book in, in comedy rules. In it your could book. have only helped. We want to plug John, one of one of Jonathan's books, which I read, is terrific comedy rules. And you were talking about Chapman and Cleese and how they collaborated, how they wrote together. That oh, Cleese yes. would sit there doing all the typing and all the yes. work, and the Chapman would show up. What hungover? Well, John sat at his typewriter in a very businesslike fashion, and he would go very slowly and meticulously because that's what he's like. And you know, he might spend a lot of time on a comma. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, Graham would arrive late, um, and then he didn't really do anything. He would lie on the floor, stare at the ceiling, and bark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and look at Playboy because at that time he was trying to pretend that he was. Oh, I see. He was straight, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and none of us guessed that he wasn't. Um, and um, and I said to John one day, why, why do you do this when you're doing almost all the work? And he said, because every two or three days, Graham comes up with an idea or a line that is so funny that it's worth it. Oh, believable. Wow. Worth the trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. They were very good friends. You met them at a party, at a, ca at a cabaret? Well, that was at Cambridge. At we Cambridge. were all in this comedy club called the Footlights Club. Uh -huh. and, uh, and yeah, they did. I was at some, well, I was playing in the band, I think, at some party. The jazz and, band. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I was told there was a cabaret. I was new at Cambridge. And um, so it was a cabaret. I thought cabaret meant, you know, topless girls. And <laughs> you know, so I was looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then on came these two very tall young men, um, and uh, and they were very funny. And I thought, where do they get these comedians from? And it turned out they were students. Um, one of them was Cleese, who was a, also a law student, and one was Graham Chapman, who was a medical student and who did, in fact, subsequently become a doctor. That's right. Um, so they were both meant to be a lawyer and a doctor. 
Well, a lot of us were yeah. meant. Well, you to, got a we law were all meant to be other things. I mean, I was yeah. meant to be a lawyer. Uh, Tim Brooke Taylor, who we mentioned, was meant to be a lawyer. He was a law student. Stephen Frears, the director, you know, the film director. Group. Yeah, he was. A, he has a degree in law. Was he, Tony Hendra hanging around too? Tony Hendra was hanging around. That describes it really. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, he wasn't a law student. I don't know what he right. What he studied. But what a talented and group. Were you and all of these people meant to be? Lawyers and doctors, were your families, like, really disappointed that you were... I think so. (laughs) 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 I think they didn't really quite understand why, you know. And 20 years later, uh, after I'd had quite a lot of success in my career, I did a play that flopped. Uh, it It was on for... One night, I think, and it got and it, it was killed by the critics, and and um, my mother phoned and said, "You know, um, you can still go back to the law." <laughs> <laughs> At this point, you directed feature films, and yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Norman yeah. Lear told us a story that is mo- that he was uh, he called his mother to tell her that he was one of the the first five inductees into the Television Hall of Fame along with Lucille Ball and Milton Berle and William Paley, and he was just in this rarefied company, this rare company, and he called her and he gave her the news, and she said, well, if that's what they want to do. (laughs) 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 It could be a Jewish mother thing. It could be. Well, Mel Brooks said when he was working for Sid Caesar, and Sid Caesar was the number one show in the world, uh, that his mother was calling him every day saying, so? You still have the job there? <laughs> they don't know? You still have the job? <laughs> well, my mother wasn't like that. She loved the theatre. She was When she grew up in the east end of London, in, well, in Kennington, um, very, she was very, um, they weren't very well off, but she saved up all her pocket money and went to the Old Vic Theatre, which was just down the road. And uh, she told me she saw John Gielgud's Hamlet 26 oh. times. Oh, wow. That must have been almost every performance. Wow. Um and uh, uh, she was a fanatical theater goer. She didn't disapprove. She just thought it's a it's a dog's life. Sure. You know, it's uh, the odds are so far so much against you, and it's so hard to make a, a, a living. And why inflict this on yourself? So she wasn't she wasn't against the the notion, and then she was very encouraging. We well, should have something to fall back on. Yeah, she'd yeah. have something to fall back even on. even at that stage. That, that's yes. surprise. I I've heard that story. So many times of people who were like in poverty, but they would save up their pennies for either a movie or live shows. Yes. Like it was entertainment was important. Warms your heart. Yes. Well, she really, she really, uh, she really loved it. And, uh, and so I was brought up from the age of about four or five, I was taken to the theater every, every few weeks. Um, there was a very good theater in Bristol, which had a lot of, wonderful actors appearing there at one time or another. Peter O'Toole was the most outstanding, but there was um, most of the great actors in England played there at one time or another. So, and I saw, you know, a whole lot of good stuff. By the time I was grown up, I was really, I knew a lot about it. Had you seen Gilgood and Olivier and Ralph Richardson and these people? Did you see them on stage? Oh, Some yes. Of the great British them, actors? All of them, yes. Peter, Peter O'Toole as well? Peter O'Toole, I think, was... The 
the greatest of them all. Imagine that. The problem was that, of course, he went into films and hardly went back to the theatre from the age of about 30. Yeah. Um, but I saw his... I saw him on stage a lot for two and a half years at Bristol. Then I saw him at Stratford-on-Avon playing Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew and Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. He was only in his 20s. He was absolutely great. About that. And then, um, and then in a play in London called The Long and the Short and the Tall, which was a wonderful anti-war play. And then he was, went into movies and he changed his face. I mean, he used to have a sort of a long-pointed, sort of lumpy nose... And I mean, he looked tough, mm-hmm. and they turned him into this this pretty person, matinee idol, matinee idol. Yeah. And and I mean, I thought he was great in Lawrence of Arabia sure. and some other films, but he, sure. I don't think he was Rolling ever class. as good as he was on the stage. How about that? That's so funny because he was always, uh, you know, a very pretty looking. Not when I first saw him. Interesting. And he was a better actor than those other actors, legendary. Well. Actors. Better. It's a matter of taste, but yeah. I mean, I, I really loved what he did. He wasn't better than Gilgood. He was different. Yeah, he wasn't better than Olivier. I mean, all these all these people brought something very different to it. Um, you know, Guinness. I mean, I I saw all of them. They they were wonderful. What a gift um, to have been able to see all of them. Yes, in their prime. Yeah, um, and they were great. But I, I I just I think I saw I think what Peter O'Toole had was a sort of versatility. Which you got a glimpse of in a film called My Favorite Year, which um, we were talking about. When you see what a really funny person he yes. was, which you don't see in most of his movies. Yes, um, and uh, and of course that was true of Olivier. I mean, Olivier was a great comic actor. I think better at comedy than tragedy. And I can't think of a lot of comedies on screen. He's funny in Sleuth. But he dry, didn't do any comedies on screen. Yeah. He did a lot on stage. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of too many comedies on no. screen that he was in. I think of him playing, you know, the heavy in Marathon Man. Yeah, and yeah. those kinds of things and Wuthering Heights. Well, you know, his his one of his great Shakespeare films, Richard the uh, Third. He's both malevolent and extremely funny. It's a film that's not shown much anymore, but it's a great performance. I have never seen it, but now I will. Well, I want to get the chronology of this too, Jonathan. You, how long had you been in the company before they told you that you were going to New York? In what company? In the in the working with the, the. I hadn't been. You you weren't in at all. Well, I'd been I'd been in the band. In the band, but that I mean, we were all in the same club, and I, you know I was junior to them. They'd seen me in some funny right. sketches. I right. think I was in the first sketch that Eric Idle ever wrote. Um, he, he we were in the same college at Cambridge, and he said to me one day, "Do you want to try and you know there, there was something there was a college drama show coming up." He said, "Do you want to try and do a funny sketch?" you want to write one with me? And I said, no, I can't write. I've never written anything. And he said, well, I'll have a go. So he wrote this sketch, and it, it was quite funny. And um, so... The Buckingham uh, Palace Guard sketch? Yes. Yeah. How do you know that? Oh, I know things. Um, <laughs> I don't remember it. I just remember that's what it was. And uh, so we did that, and it, it went very well. And then Eric and I... Um, actually, I didn't really write much with him, but... Um, he always writes by himself, and uh, I mean, even in the Monty Python group, he always wrote by yeah, himself. Sure. You know, they split up into. Did you find that sketch years later and give it to him as a I gift? I did. Yeah, I did. I found it about twenty-five years later about at the that. bottom of a drawer, <laughs> and that. I framed it and sent it to him for his birthday. That's great. So, <laughs> you aside from I, Gilliam, you knew them all for years. 
Gilliam being the American. Well, I knew Gilliam. Oh, you knew Gilliam too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, he was in London doing Monty Python. Oh, that's right. Of yeah. course. I, I meant to ask before, uh, John, is John Cleese a funny person in real life? He can be. Uh, like most comedians, he's funny when he when he's in the mood, when he chooses to be, when he turns it on. He's also extremely serious, um, which, again, I think is true of most comedians. Um but yes, he can be very funny, certainly. You said in your book that all comedians and funny people are angry. I think that's true. I think they're not always they're not always angry when they get to my age. <laughs> um, um, but yes, I think a comedy attacks institutions. It attacks, you know, it ridicules. If 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 art is. Um, is criticism of life. Comedy is criticism of life by ridicule. Um, you know, we set out to make fun of everything, you know, the government, the politics, the army, the church, the, the whatever. Um, and, and we do it because, I think, because we're all angry about something and, it's, and, and I think everybody is angry from their childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry to be sort of psychological Not about at all. it, but no, I, think I think everyone you... suffers from some sort of primitive murderous rage <laughs> <laughs> as a child, either with their parents or with their siblings, um, and they, they, can't, they can't show it because you, as a child you have to be good, in quotes, so you repress it, and um, then as you grow up, you, you, an outlet for anger is comedy. Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the ways... And and I think what happens is that what you do as a as a comedy writer or a comedian is in a way is that you tell the truth. You know, John Rivers said that. Um, uh, let me see if I can get what she said precisely. She said, uh, "I make people laugh just by saying what everybody's thinking." <laughs> and I think that's true. And I think that the audience, when they watch something funny. And they laugh. That's they're owning up. They're either they're saying that that they're, by laughing they're saying I did that or I thought that or I wish I'd done that if I'd thought of it or I wish I'd said that or sometimes more aggressively, you said that you've done that. That's interesting. <laughs> I'm contemptuous of you for doing that. Um, and that's that's why comedy language is all about killing. Yeah. Interesting. You know, as we all know, comedians, when they talk about their audience doing an act, they say, I killed them. It went well. I slayed them. I knocked them dead. And if it goes badly, they say, I died. Do you agree with this, Gilbert, this anger uh, yeah. notion that, yeah. that most funny people are? So you, you agree with the idea that comics are basically a little damaged? Oh, I would say very damaged. <laughs> Hasn't that been our experience, Gil? <laughs> um, Both yours and mine. Yes, I think so. And uh, but I think as life goes on, they sometimes they sometimes mellow either through success or therapy or a good relationship or something. Mm-hmm. But, but but the problem is that when you're funny, it's a great outlet for anger, but it's not a cure. <laughs> no. you, you're still angry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And and it's it's a funny well with any creative outlet, it's always a scary thing. Like people who will either go to analysis or give up drugs and alcohol, are they destroying what's their creativity? I don't think so. Do you? I mean, I've known a number of of dry drunks who are still funny. Yeah. Um, I don't think psychoanalysis. I think it helps you understand yourself better. But it doesn't. Success is a greater threat. Success to funny, in my my opinion. Yes, because then you're out there on the tennis court all day, or flying around in your private jet. You know, can't be bothered. I mean, what 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 happens with with people who are very some people who are very successful is they stop bothering. But it doesn't happen to the best people. The best people remain funny, and angry one way or another. Mm -hmm. I think permanently. And it's funny to think that, I always think this going back to old entertainment, like people don't realize like when they watch Charlie Chaplin now or the Marx Brothers, just how rebellious they were. Very, very. I mean, Chaplin, because he's always got this veneer of of sentiment and pathos because he was always trying to make himself appealing. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, it's like um, the, uh, the problem with being angry and showing it, and this is why comedy is such a useful outlet for disguising your anger. If you're angry and you show it, you're not funny anymore. Um, and you, you want to be liked by an audience. All comedians and, and comedy writers want audience approval. You know, so, I mean, you know that saying, if a, if a, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there, did it really fall? Well... Henny Youngman's version of that was, if a husband's alone in the forest, is he still wrong? <laughs> Great joke. <laughs> Great joke. And, and uh, but, but, you know, the problem is you do want to be liked. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a balance that you have to find. I find that the funniest people like Chaplin, like Groucho, who was an angry man, Yeah. Uh, that, that there's, there's a connection there. The, the, the comedians that I've always enjoyed over the years when I've done some digging, I always find that there's a lot of dysfunction. Oh, yeah. And a lot of terrible childhoods in the case of someone like Chaplin. Groucho's childhood, too. But, yeah. but all, also, uh, there's, there's anger. There's a, yeah. there's a, all of their jokes are angry. I mean, all of, all of the Marx Brothers jokes are angry. Yeah. Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, these are yeah, angry people. they're angry people. Yeah. That's why they're funny. I agree. I agree. Because they're saying things that other people don't or won't say. I agree. Or do. Tell us and, about... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, when, when, when Groucho was... Uh, when he was a member of the Hillcrest Country Club, you know, that was the club that he famously said, oh, I sure. won't, don't want to join a club that would have me as a member. Well, um, he was offered to join another club. I think it was Bel Air, but I'm not sure. And they said, but you can't go in the swimming pool. That's because he was Jewish, right? He said, you can't go in the swimming pool. And he said, well... My daughter's only half Jewish. Can she wade in up to her knees? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very fu- funny, but it's an angry joke. I, yeah. I mean, it's a really angry comedy. joke. Yeah. And now, while Gilbert heads into the nutmeg kitchen to steal more Perrier, <laughs> a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Frank went out to pee. Now 
their backs so they can be on their amazing colossal podcast. Podcast. Kids, time to get back to Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. So let's go. Just tell Gilbert this one thing that I know he'll love. Uh, the Sullivan show that you did. Yeah. You were 21. Yeah. You come to New York. The yes. show did not last on Broadway. No. It's a couple of... Uh, by the way, the Times Review is still online. I was reading it today. Very interesting. The Times Review, review. was the only one that wasn't good enough, but the Times was the only paper that really can't... We got five great reviews out of six. 1964. But we were, we were totally unknown. I mean, you know. Right. Totally unknown. It's and, fascinating now to see it in this context. The, there, there are clips from the sketches online too on YouTube. I know how that must be terribly embarrassing. Well, it's just audio. Oh right, but it's oh, English I'm, for beginners. Right, it's the the Cleese, the courtroom sketch. It's fascinating. Oh yeah, that was really funny. Yeah, fascinating. Some to of those sketches to. were really funny. But but the, the night that you did Sullivan was in some way a famous Sullivan night. It was. It was the night that he had the famous fight with Jackie Mason. How about that, Gil? Wow, <laughs> Jonathan so that, was there. That was the <laughs> alleged finger yes well i saw it i mean i was right there i'd just been on and uh, well what happened was at the dress rehearsal um the, the animals were on the rock group and it was only a few weeks after the beatles or maybe a few months i don't know after the beatles were on and he always ed sullivan always tried to put a british rock group on and that meant that the audience was full of screaming teenage girls aged about 14 or 15 and there was a dress rehearsal with an audience in the afternoon, and Jackie Mason had top billing. And so he went on last, and he was given, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 12 minutes, but he tried, none of his jokes worked with this audience. So he got, he kept, he just kept trying and kept going on, and he went on and on, and finally he stopped. And the, and and Sullivan and the producers said to him, well, you can't, you know, you've got to keep the time tonight. And... uh there were a lot of big people on the show. Van Johnson was on the show. He wow. sang, he was doing a show at the Copacabana, I think it was, and he sang Girl from Ipanema. <laughs> Van Johnson. Um, oh, jeez. But he didn't know the lyrics. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a line in it, Girl from Ipanema is so fair and gentle. And the prop man, who was obviously Jewish, had written so fair and gentile, and he sang it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And uh, so he was sort of, he was demoted, as it were. He was told he couldn't, because this was a big night. LBJ was going to address the nation from 8.30 to 8.45. So there was a 15, crucial 15-minute period on the East Coast where nobody would see the show. And that was, everyone wanted to avoid that 15 minutes. And, of course, we were put right in the middle of that 15 minutes because we were unknown. But we were funny at the dress rehearsal, or moderately so. So we were given a spot just before LBJ. Van Johnson was told he was going to be on in the middle of LBJ's speech, so he walked out, he put on his fedora and left, and his agent hurried after him saying, you can't behave like this to Ed Sullivan. So he came back and he was given, um, yeah, he was told, you know, we'll, I'll introduce you at 8.12, but you're actually going to sing at 8.40. Uh, and then, and Joan Sutherland was on, you know, the great opera singer. Sure. She was doing the mad scene from Lucia D'Amour and, uh, which the, it lasts 18 minutes, but they'd cut her down to four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and how did I get on to The Sullivan this? thing you were watching. You were, uh, you oh, were watching Jackie, Jackie Mason. Mason. Sorry, yeah, yeah Jackie Mason. Jackie I'm Mason. sorry if I'm going on No, it's long. all right. It's interesting. So, so Jackie Mason went on that night, and he still, his material just wasn't working. 
And so, and what happened was, because he was sort of partially ad-lib, and he, he, he started a joke, and, and he was thrown because he got a two-finger sign from the stage manager. So it threw him, and he started the gag all over again. He got to the same point, and he got a one-finger sign. Whereupon he said to the stage manager, add a finger to you. <laughs> but he didn't make an obscene gesture. If he did, it wasn't on screen. I couldn't see. Um, well, he, they cut him off because that was considered an obscene remark. And then there was this tremendous fight afterwards, which I think I'd made worse because Ed Sullivan had told me to tap him lightly on the head with my tambourine when I went off at the end of the song I was doing. But I was a bit nervous, so I really bashed him. <laughs> um, and he looked a bit cross-eyed for a second and wobbled. And um, so I think maybe he was in a bad temper anyway. But then he was in a terrible rage with Jackie Mason. And they shouted and screamed at each other. And, and a torrent of filthy language from Ed Sullivan, who was this sort of super Catholic, Mr. Nice Guy, you know, um, language you wouldn't credit. <laughs> Um, and then, although I didn't see it, I gather he threw Jackie Mason down a flight of stairs. Um, wow. The next day they sued each other, and every, as you know. And, yes. And Jackie Mason didn't work on television for 15 years. This story's been told on this show several times, but never by an eyewitness. Oh, well, We've talked uh, it about was, it. yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I think it was just a nervous response when he got a one-minute finger sign from How about the, that, Gil? Boy. Yeah, because yeah. I remember I've seen it, and he doesn't give the finger. He's just going. You can't see it. He said yeah. a finger for you and a finger for yeah, you. Yeah, and yeah. yeah this one's giving me this finger. This one's giving me that finger. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> any, <laughs> is that what he said? I don't remember. <laughs> something like that. Something like that. And anyway, but Sullivan went nuts. Yeah, and he didn't work for a long time. I think it was about 15 years on television. Yeah, how about that? That, that was such the power of Ed Sullivan. Yes. Yeah. So you went back. This was uh, the this, this was the big New York debut in the states. Yes, you went back to the UK and what decided? Well, they you were all gonna... wanted to be comedians. I see, and I didn't. I wanted to be an actor. I was very, I had a very inflated idea of what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I was going to be the next Alec Guinness or something. So I got a job in, and I was lucky. I immediately got work in regional theatres, and. Um, Yes, so I went back and I became an actor, and then, um, and then you started acting and writing for television. No, well, that was much later. Oh, it was much later. Well, I mean, well, I was two years, two or three years later. I was in Fiddler on the Roof, right? Um, original London uh, cast, original London cast with with Jerome Robbins directing me. That was a tough experience because you know he was a genius, but he wasn't really a nice guy. Jerome Robbins. Yeah, um, I mean, he may be nice to some people. But anyway, I was really bad during the previews because he hadn't been there and I'd been directed by an assistant who kept telling me to play it. And they kept showing me what Austin Pendleton did in the original New York production. I see. Uh, I subsequently became great friends with yeah. Austin. He plays the stuttering lawyer in My Cousin Vinny. But, but, um, but I'm nothing like him as an actor. So I tried to do what I was told. Anyway, Robbins arrived and in time for the first preview... And I was terrible. And the first rehearsal next morning, predictably, was 10 o'clock for me in all my scenes. <laughs> and uh, so he said, um, why are you doing that? And we, I, we started and I did so. He said, why are you doing that? And I said, I've been told to. He said, really? And I said, yeah. So he said, well, 
all right, let's start again, let's do it differently. So he was he directed me very well at one point. He wasn't happy with the fact I was being too self-effacing. Um, and he said, you know, um, look, you want a married title. He always had a really big smile on his face when he was going to be truly unpleasant. He smiled <laughs> from ear to ear. He said, he grinned at me and he said, you, you, you want a married title. She wants to marry you. Look at her. Rosemary, she's a beautiful girl. She wants to marry you. So somehow we have to find some way to turn you into an attractive human being. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a, you're a kid at this point. I was 23. 23. <laughs> <laughs> the great Jerome Robbins putting you through your paces. Yeah, and then some. Well, then, then I got better after that, and uh, and he was he was he stopped smiling at me, which was a good sign. <laughs> Unlike with most people, <laughs> was it Robbins who who worked with Zero years later? Yes. And Jack Ilford. No, he you? worked with Zero much earlier. Oh, oh, was, oh okay. Zero had been asked to name names to the House right. Activities Committee, as you probably know, and right. refused. Yes, we had Josh here, his son. Right. So, and then Robbins was asked to name names, and he did. Um, he had also been, a, I suppose, a communist or whatever would passed for a communist in those days. <coughs> he was asked to name names, so Zero and Robbins did not speak. Well, they were doing a funny thing happened on the way to the forum out of town, and it wasn't working. And Hal Prince, the producer, said, the only person that I know who can fix this and make it work is Jerry Robbins. Can we? Do you mind if I get him in to work on the show and redirect it? And it was Jack Guilford that told me this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jack Guilford said, he was so proud of this. He said, Zero said, I, will, I won't have dinner with him, but I will work with him. We on the left have no blacklist. That's powerful. So they did work together, and then, and of course, it was a huge hit. And um, and then they worked together on Fiddler, not very warmly, apparently. I I didn't do it with Zero. I did it in London with Topple. Oh, and, uh, interesting. So, did Zero have some crack about about when he when he entered the room and he shook Robin's hand oh, for the first yes. time? Yes. Well, when uh, it was Jack Guilford that told me this story, uh, he, he was, you know, he was in the Castor Forum, and he said they never referred to this whole history between them of Robin's naming names to the House Un American Activities Committee, except one time when Robin's arrived for his first day of rehearsal, and Zero said, "Hello, Liz Lips." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> 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 Mustel struck me as the kind of guy that could hold a grudge. Uh, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not unreasonably. Of not unreasonably in this case. No, not at all. And so both of them were blacklisted, both Zero and Jack Ilford. Ilford, too. Uh, Jack Ilford was, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it was a tragic time. Oh, God. And I met a lot of these guys in London because I knew a writer who was the first president of the Screenwriters Guild called Donald Ogden Stewart. He won the Oscar for Philadelphia Story. Um, terrific uh, writer. Terrific yeah. writer. Holiday. Holiday, yeah. yes. and Life with Father. Yes. Lots of great movies. And 
he was asked to name names in 1954 when he had a play on the road in New Haven coming into Broadway and he refused and just got up and left America, moved to London and lived in Hampstead but never worked again, um, which made him very angry, which he just (laughs) covered with a lot of good jokes. Um, But at his house, and I I, I knew him, I was still 22, 23, and he was in his 70s, and... uh, at his house every Sunday afternoon, he and his wife Ella Winter would have um, expatriate Americans over for tea. So I met Ring Lardner and Waldo Salt and Chaplin once. Wow! And all kinds of people there, and um, and one of them said, I can't remember which one said. Oh, I think it was Dalton Trumbo said, um, talking about this whole un-American activities thing. We were all victims. He was talking about the people who named names and the people who didn't. He, you know, he took a very he took a very wide view of it, and uh, so that was it. Was interesting. So I knew a whole lot about those people and their history. So when I came to write the screenplay of Clue, um, and I had to set it in a in a period of American history, you know, the country house thriller, right. parody of a country house thriller like Agatha Christie had to be, period. So I said in the 50s because I knew all about that period of American history from all of these writers that I'd met when I was young. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you were you also had to you had to make the story work. So you were looking well, for a way, to, a way to give them aliases. I, I had to find a story, yeah. Right, but I mean, right. but, but I chose that period because it was the period of American history I actually knew something about because I'd met you know, all of these writers and Jack Gilford and everybody, you know, I knew them all. How did you find Chaplin to be before we talk about... Well, he was just very old and Mm -hmm. pleasant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think Paul Newman said of that era, he said, it's very easy now to say what you would have done then. Well, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, when all those people opposed... Ilya Kazan getting that honorary Oscar. It was interesting that some people, notably liberal politics like Warren Beatty, um, supported him. He'd worked with him. He'd worked with him. He thought he was a great director. And, uh, you know, and nobody knows what the pressures were. Um, Kazan's autobiography is very interesting because he says he never named anybody who they didn't know the names of already. He just gave them names that they knew. Um, so it didn't make any difference. But for some reason, he was picked out as the ultimate bad guy. I got a question about Clue, uh, Jonathan. From I was just going to tell you another thing. When I, I was talking to Orson Welles about yeah, all this. Yeah, tell us about I, that. I was acting for Orson Welles. And I, we, I asked him about that whole period. And I said, where were you in all that? And he said, well, I was never a communist like all those guys. I was a liberal. And I said, would you refuse to talk to Kazan or any of those people? And he said, no, I think it's childish not to say good morning to people. <laughs> Interesting. Which I thought was rather wise. Yeah, yeah. Wells was I, good to you, by the way. Very good to me. I had the best time. That's nice. You worked yeah. with him for about three months on, about a, on, three a, months. on a project that didn't materialize? Uh, well, it... it, it it never was finished. I see. 
I mean, there were lots of dailies. Um, it was one of his 11 uncompleted films. Were there 11? He, I think there's 11. Yeah, he was constantly starting movies and either running out of money. It wasn't the other side of the wind. It wasn't the... It wasn't the other side of the wind, though he was doing bits of that on the side. We had Bogdanovich here. Oh, right, yes. Uh, He was doing bits of that on the side. This was called Orson's Bag. Orson's Bag. (laughs) And it was a CBS TV special, and he did some... uh, I I was hired because he wanted to do do some sketches. It was in the mid-'60s. He wanted to do a sketch of Swinging London, and I was to be a tailor, and Charles Gray. You know Charles Gray? He was the bad yeah, guy in Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah right. Gold, um, yeah. And uh, and we were to be tailors, and Orson was to be uh, uh, an American customer in, in uh, Savile Row in the swinging 60s. And then, oh, there were various other sketches. Oh, there was a scene in a London club when I was a 100-year-old butler. I was 25. Um, and... and <laughs> And he played, there were three elderly Brits, and he played all of them, apparently, though I never saw his performance in that. Um, and then there was a bit of The Merchant of Venice, all of Shylock scenes. So, and But yes, he ran out of money because CBS, he spent all of CBS's money and he hadn't anywhere near finished it. And then, like with all his other projects, he hustled around trying to make some money from his commercials. So... You know, from Sherry and Bird's Eye. Oh, yeah. Peas. Oh, oh Bird's yeah. Eye Peas. Oh, sure. It's a classic. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a classic. It's a classic. Yeah, well, he, well, he told me how, how that happened, how that came about, why he was so rude to them. Um, they made him audition. And he, they said, oh. it was for voiceover. And they said, surely, he said, surely to God, somebody in that little agency of yours knows what I sound like. <laughs> about that and, never and they this. said well you, you, we've got to audition so he auditioned for them and he, of course he got the job and then they said will you come to our studio on Water Street he said no I'm in Europe filming you'll have to come to me so he said so I made them bring their little tape recorder <laughs> to the Georges Sank Hotel in Paris we do to a meet on 11 o'clock on a Tuesday and uh, I checked out at 10 and went to Venice they arrived and I wasn't there. So they found out where I was and they followed me to Venice and just before they got there, I checked out and went to Vienna. <laughs> Said I made them chase me out around <laughs> Europe for 10 days with their, with their shitty little tape recorder. <laughs> yeah, I remember. That's, that's the one where he says, That's great. Show me how to emphasize in, in, in July and I'll go down on you. It's wonderful. That's right. It's That's wonderful. Right. You've yeah. heard, of course. You've I've heard got those it. out. Oh, you've got it. It's yes. a wonderful, yeah. a wonderful artifact. And then there's that drunken Paul Maison. There's the other one commercial. where he's had a couple of sips of. It's that's, that's on YouTube. He's had a couple I've of drinks. I've seen that. I'll send he's it to you. Got a high pitch voice. He's had a couple of drinks. <laughs> and by the seventh or eighth take, he's in his cups. And the, I, I gotta ask you. I mean, this the thing about him is he was very funny. People don't. I'm sure know he that was. About him, but in real life, he was extremely funny. Now I I gotta can't let you get away without this one. Uh, uh you claim there's no such a thing as bad taste when it comes to comedy. Yes. 
You want me to elaborate? Oh on yes. <laughs> Have you seen Gilbert Sack, by the way? <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've heard about it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think all comedy, by definition, is in bad taste because it's going to offend somebody. If it doesn't offend anybody, it's probably not doing its job. So uh. the question is, the question. So since I think there's all, since I think all comedy is in, arguably in bad taste. There's no such thing as good taste, I think, in comedy. So, what? What? what it, the question is a different question: is Is it funny or isn't it funny? If it's funny, it's not in bad taste. If it makes people laugh, it's not in bad taste. If it doesn't make people laugh, then it is in bad taste. Usually, um, you know, Carl Reiner had the best definition of funny that I ever heard. You know, he said, "If you put." It up on the screen in front of an audience of 400 people and they laugh, it's funny. If you put it up on the screen and they don't laugh, it's not funny. And I think that's right. Uh, so, uh, uh, now that doesn't mean that everybody finds everything funny. Everyone's taste is different. Um, so, for instance, if I go and see a show and I don't think it's funny but the rest of the audience does, if the rest of the audience is laughing, I don't come out of there and say, it wasn't funny. I come out and say, I didn't find it funny, which is slightly different. Um, That's interesting. But, but I think all comedy, by definition, is what we talked about before. It's going to upset or going to offend or going to criticize somebody, and it always runs the risk of being in bad taste. Because its job is to tear things down. It's to tear things down. Yeah. Sometimes you go too far, mm -hmm. and you go into not funny. <laughs> Gilbert wouldn't know. <laughs> Gil, did you ever go too far? Uh, no. <laughs> Never got in trouble I, for that. I do have one question about Clue since we're oh, yeah? we're moving along quickly. This is actually from a listener, Johnny Caps. Uh, Clue was not initially a success, and yet it's become a classic, uh, especially among young people who discover it year after year. Why does Jonathan think young audiences? What does Jonathan think young audiences see in Clue that older audiences didn't? Well, I don't think it's quite that simple. I think older audiences didn't see it at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, multiple endings didn't help? Well, the, we opened with these multiple endings, which everyone, all the producers, it was my first film, so I didn't know any better. All the producers said it would be a great idea because, you know, partly because Clue can work, the game could work out in lots of different ways, so they thought multiple endings was a great idea. They asked me to write it with multiple endings. I wasn't going to direct it at that point. So I said yes, and I wrote four. Um, and it was very difficult to write because you have to, you know, trying to write a, uh, a suspense or a thriller, even if it's a parody of that, where logically all four explanations at the end make sense. Right. It's quite difficult to engineer because people can go back and look at the film and say, well, that didn't make sense. So they've all got to make sense. Well, it, it, I realized during the making of the film, or rather during the editing of the film, that if we didn't put put them all together, no one would see that that was ingenious, um, which was really the point of it. Uh, they thought that if we have three or four different endings out there in different movie theaters, people would go three or four times. <laughs> well, no. What happened was they thought, I don't know which to go to, so they didn't go. Or maybe they thought, if these filmmakers don't know how to end the film, why should I go and see it? So anyway, for whatever reason, they didn't go. And it didn't get very good reviews. So 
most people didn't see it. It did no business. So then what happened was, I think, that these people, you know, in the, with the dearth of what to show on afternoon television over the years, TV companies showed it in the middle of the afternoon, and children watched it. And they thought it was absolutely great. Um, and they kept watching it. And as they grew up, they thought they still thought it was great. Mm -hmm. And because the jokes are not really kids' jokes, you can appreciate it as a kid, but there are lots of grown-up jokes. So what happened was a whole generation of people watched the film by default, as it were, on television, and then kept watching it, and it became a lot of people's big favorite. It's a, it's a, um, got a big following. It's got a huge following. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, of course, I'm as surprised as the next man. Right. Anybody else want a whiskey? Yeah. All right, look, pay attention, everybody. Wadsworth, am I right in thinking there is nobody else in this house? Mm, no. Then there is someone else in this house. No, sorry, I said no meaning yes. No meaning yes? Look, I want a straight answer. Is there someone else or isn't there yes or no? Um, no. No, there is or no, there isn't? Yes. Please! Don't you think we should get that man out of the house before he finds out what's been going on here? Yeah. How can we throw him outside in this weather? If we let him stay in the house, he may get suspicious. If we throw him out, he may get even more suspicious. If I were him, I'd be suspicious already. Oh, who cares? That guy doesn't matter. Let him stay locked up for another half an hour. The police will be here by then, and there are two dead bodies in the study. Shh. Well, there is still some confusion as to whether or not there's anybody else in this house. I told you there isn't. There isn't any confusion or there isn't anybody else? Either. Or both. Just give me a clear answer. Certainly. <clears throat> what was the question? Is there anybody else in the house? No! no! Watch it the other night and I tell you, that cast, I mean, in, in some ways it's a once-in-a-lifetime cast to have Martin Mull and, and, and McKean and, that, and your friend Tim Curry. Yes. And, all of, and Madeline, of course. Madeline was so wonderful. She is. She was so great, um, but I didn't know it was a once in a lifetime cast. I'd come over from England. I didn't know who any of them were except Madeline Kahn, who I'd seen in Mel Brooks's films, and Curry, and, you had and, history and, with, and, Paper, and Curry, right. Tim Curry, I'd been to school with. Right. Um, but for the rest, I didn't know them, and they were just people who their agents suggested, and they read the script and wanted to be in it, and they came in for meetings the way people do, and I thought these people would be good. I didn't know they were iconic characters or maybe they weren't in those days I don't know um, but it turned out that they were good choices it's fun yeah. it's fun I watched it again the other night oh good yeah and it's nice isn't it nice and gratifying to have to, to see a film grow an audience over the years it's like, extraordinary something like It's a Wonderful Life did not do very well upon yes. initial release and then gained a reputation it, it happens quite often which is my main reason for preferring to do films and plays mm -hmm. because if a play doesn't work it it's dead. It's, it's over. Dead. That's it. It's gone forever. Yeah. If a film doesn't work the first time out, uh, that just could mean that the critics, who are, after all, that's just a few people's opinions, and yeah. they're, they're as often wrong as right. They didn't like it. They put people off. People didn't go. But it's still there. And over the years, people do get a chance to see it again sometimes. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. And you, you, well, you talked about in England, you saw Sergeant Bilko. 
Yes. With Phil Silvers, and you were a fan. Yes. And then years later, you would make uh, Sergeant Bilko into a film. Yes. And the, talk jo- about Jonathan the- is staring. I'm telling yeah. our listeners the look on Jonathan's <laughs> face. <laughs> Yeah, he's not helping me. <laughs> he's staring at Gilbert. He's, he's You're really going to bring up Sergeant Bilko. Well, I, I don't think Sergeant Bilko, the movie, a lot of people liked it, but I don't think it works. I'm not happy with it. Um, and um, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, Phil Silvers was so great. And although Steve, is an, Steve Martin's an absolutely brilliant comedian, um, I'm not sure that really it was his part. Um, he wanted to do it completely differently um, and bring his own qualities to it, which he did, and he had some very funny scenes in it. Um, I was still imagining Phil Silvers, so I don't think we were quite together on it. Um, We never got the script to work before we started shooting, so every Saturday, we shot Monday to Friday, every Saturday Steve and I would meet and write some new stuff for the following week, which actually is some of the best stuff in the movie, I think. Um, but the big mistake with, with it was um, was that it was a, a really bad marketing idea. When the Phil Silver show was on, when Sergeant Boko was first on, it was right after the Korean War. It was not long after World War II. Nearly every man in America had been in the army or in the military in some form, and they understood it and they knew it and they got all the jokes and it all meant something to them. And, you know, you have to do movies about things that people understand, that that are interesting to them. When we made Sergeant Bilko, it was 20-something or 30 years after the Vietnam War, there was no more draft, maybe 300,000 people in the whole of America were serving in the military, it was a foreign yeah, country to the them. context had changed. The context had changed, and, and it's recognition that m- makes people laugh. And there wasn't any recognition about anything military from most of the audience. Um, Still good performances. Very good performances. Yeah. Steve is very funny. Yeah. Phil, Phil Hartman's Hartman, funny. Phil Hartman's wonderful. Dan Aykroyd's always yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were good good performances and some very funny scenes. But I never thought we got the script quite right. Hartman's funny in your other picture, too, and Greedy. Uh, yeah, Phil was great. Yeah. He was one of the funniest people I've ever worked with. What a loss. What a loss. Let's talk quickly about a film that does work as we wind down. T- well, some people think Bilko works. I mean, I'm just telling you what, yeah. well, I, mean, what in, I think. In your, opi- <laughs> in your opinion, my cousin Vinny. Yeah, uh, and, people love that one. Which and and interesting too, as the I was telling Gilbert, as a as a lawyer, you're proud of the fact that it works from a legal perspective as well. I it's am legally accurate. It is legally accurate, and it's very, uh, it's it's very nice that the most enthusiastic people about the film are trial lawyers and judges. I mean, I've been to talk at a couple of <laughs> conventions of of federal judges and and. Uh, I, and I, you know, I guess people, law, law schools apparently use it uh, for teaching evidence and for teaching, you know, for teaching about how to do things in court, which is really very nice. Now, I don't take all the credit for that. Dale Lorna wrote the mm-hmm. script um, and he'd researched it very well. Um, I did add some stuff, obviously. Um, 
But the main thing I'm pleased with is not, that, although I love the fact that it's legally accurate, um, I'm really pleased with it. It breaks a lot of Hollywood rules. The biggest rule is there's no bad guy. Yeah. Most people think that Hollywood comedies, is, I mean, there's always a bad guy. And I get sort of bored when the bad guy comes on because I think, oh, I see how this works. Vinny doesn't have a bad guy. No, the closest thing you've got is Lane Smith's prosecutor. Well, yeah, but he's not a bad just guy. Doing he's, perfect. he's just doing his job. Right. He's happy to share. The, he's not withholding evidence. Yeah. He's, uh, the judge is strict and stern, but he's fair. Um, the, the, the problem is that Vinny and the, the two boys are up against the system. And uh, I, I love the fact that it, it, doesn't have, it doesn't have the traditional bad guy in, in the movie. I think it's not necessary. It's so funny. So many movies I watch where what, whatever kind of line of work, and I'm always going, something rings so false. Yeah. And even when they're dealing with show business, which they should know. Yes. It's something so false about it in movies. It, very often. And um, and with Vinny, I took great pains to get everything legally correct. Um, and as I said, Dale Lorner done a lot, but I, I, I was after all running it. And, uh, but it's also an example of, of, of how to make an angry film attractive to people. I mean... Actually, what that film was about is capital punishment. Actually saying... I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, these two boys would have been fried if they didn't have a peculiarly belligerent, aggressive lawyer, Vinny. Um, and, you know, I, for me, one of the most important things about the film was it says, you know, you can't execute people. There's no going back on that. Um, it's a comedy that's about something. It's a, I, well, I think all good comedies are mm -hmm. about something. Mm-hmm. I think that was the problem with Sergio Pilko. It's not really about anything. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a lot of funny scenes. I've heard you say that about when you tackle a project. For you, it's got to be. It's got to be about something. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. This, this was. Yeah. And uh, Frank and, and oh, yeah, go, no, go on. Frank and I were talking earlier and laughing about this is where that scene, and it's like in all the commercials, and everyone remembers. Oh, it's iconic. Yeah. Which scene? You yeah. two utes. Yeah. Oh, to Utes. Yes. <laughs> well, that that was real dialogue between Joe Pesci and me. <laughs> you were smart enough to use it. What happened was we were sitting in the Mayflower Hotel in New York, and we were trying to we were sort of working on the script a bit. And he said to me, so he said to me, "There's these two Utes," and I said, "What?" <laughs> and he said, two Utes," and I said, "What's a Ute?" He, what? Said, what? And he said. Two youths. And I thought, that's got to go in. So Great. I just put it in. Wonderful. Wonderful. Wow. And that every, that's like the most famous part of that movie. What a gift. Everyone remembers What, what was we talk about? For me, the funniest scene is Austin Pendleton oh, as the stuttering great. lawyer, which I think, I mean, I was crying with laughter behind the camera. Oh, he was terrific. I, yeah. I, I, was, I was praying that, that he wouldn't, that I wouldn't put him off and that he wouldn't hear me and that the sound wouldn't pick up my... My desperate attempts to so muffle funny. my laughter. So funny. Even in Greedy, you give him that little scene where he's the hotel clerk Austin's, when Michael J. Fox Austin's is checking out of And he steals that scene. He does. Two he's, minutes. He's, a, he's, a, he's wonderful. We love and, him. We'd love to have him here. They, they didn't want Marisa Tomei. No. But she wasn't a star. Um, they thought they needed a star. They offered it to lots of stars, mostly against my wishes and without telling me because that's what studios do. Um. 
And uh, fortunately, they all said no. And then I started holding auditions as green test. Well, I, I remember Marissa Tomei came in. She hadn't been suggested. Um, I went over to see a film, not a very good film, actually. It was being made by John Landis called Oscar. And she had a tiny part in it. And I thought, and I watched one scene and I thought, she's funny. And um, so I said to John, who is that? He said, she's called Marissa Tomei. I said, "Have you? can I see some footage of her? And he said, yes. So we went over the cutting room and I saw some footage. I went back and I said to my casting director, can we see Marissa Tomei for this? For Mona Lisa Vito. He said, well, she's not right for it. I said, why not? He said, well, William Morris has suggested everybody they've got on their list and they haven't suggested her, so she's not right. So I don't have that kind of touching faith in agents. So, <laughs> um, so I said, let's get her in. So she came in and did a wonderful reading, and then we had to do a screen test. Fox insisted that we do a screen test of our three top contenders. So I did a screen test of the three women, and Marissa was undoubtedly the best and completely right for the part. And uh, I thought, I know there's going to be trouble over this. They don't know who she is. So I took the tape over to Joe Pesci's, caravan where he was filming something else and um said what do you what do you think of these three and he said well it's got to be that one what's her name i said marissa he said it's got to be her so i sent the tape over to fox and they they selected a different woman <laughs> unbelievable so so that i went to a very long meeting a very long uh, protracted argument in which i said it's got to be marissa tomei she's the one she's right for it she sounds like she's from brooklyn she looks italian she's the real thing and they said no we want so and so the other their favorite so finally i produced my trump card and i said well joe pesci says it's got to be marissa tomei and i could see them thinking oh god we don't want to have a fight with joe pesci <laughs> so <laughs> They said, oh, all right, well, it's your movie. You do what you want. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and talk she, about being vindicated. Yeah. Bit of luck, that, yeah. What about these pants I got on? You think they're okay? Oh! Imagine you're a deer. You're prancing along. You get thirsty. You spot a little brook. You put your little deer lips down to the cool, clear water. Bullet rips off part of your head. Your brains are laying on the ground in little blood in pieces. Now I ask you, would you give a fuck what kind of pants the son of a bitch who shot you was wearing? And then that started the rumor. Oh, that ridiculous famous rumor that Hollywood she didn't really rumor win. that she wasn't the best actress, but Jack Palance was drunk that night. Yeah, and, and read the wrong name. I know. I saw people, was, a lot of people said that. There's no reason for saying it. No. And uh, she was absolutely great. And But she was the complete outsider. You know, all the others were much more famous. Um, all of them, I think, except one were American. Judy Davis was nominated, I think. She's a very famous Australian actress at the time. And um, I thought Marissa would win all the time. Because, that. well, for a very simple reason, it opened in March... By the time I got round to the Oscars the following February or whenever it was, everyone I ever spoke to said, who's that wonderful woman? Ah, everyone had seen wow. it by then. Everyone had seen it. Yeah. Everyone said, who is that girl? So and I thought, 
She stood yeah, a good chance. Comedy rules. You're talking in your book. You're talking about how often comedies are disrespected by the Oscars. So it's certainly nice to see somebody winning for a comedic performance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in, oh, go, go on. In in getting back to that subject of movies that bomb and then do well, I mean, Fort Fairlane was one of those bombed horribly and picked up a tremendous cult following. And I think had it not bombed, they they were considering Andrew Dice Clay to be the lawyer in, uh, as, to play Vinny. Had you heard that or is that a rumor? That's I, what I, I heard. I'd I heard know. that, but when, when I was offered it, Joe Pesci was attached. Okay. Oh, okay. So there you go. So um, I don't know if that was true or not. I, I, yeah. I, I don't think so. Because oh. it was originally going to be done with Danny DeVito. And Danny Vita was going to star in it and direct it. And then oh. for some point during the development, he went off it, as people do. And CAA immediately produced their other small Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Tell us quickly about Fred Gwynn, something about working with Fred was just Fred great. I loved Fred. He was so intelligent and so helpful. Um, he he was a wonderful man. He was really funny. You know, he was also a very good artist. He wrote yes. children's books. Yes. And he illustrated them. Harvard himself. educated as well. Yeah, and he was just he was just a delight. Um, and I wanted him to be in my next film, The Distinguished Gentleman. Um, and um, he said, "Are you shooting in Baltimore?" <laughs> he lived in Baltimore. Uh-huh. Yeah, I said. No, we shot some of the distinguished gentlemen in Baltimore for government buildings, but no, we're shooting in Georgia. He said, no. (laughs) (laughs) What a shame. (laughs) Ian Pesci was such a wonderful Mutt and Jeff team, I could have watched ten more movies with just the two of them going face to face. Yes. yeah, And distinguished gentlemen. They had the same sort of relationship off screen as they they had on screen. Yes. Yeah. I want to recommend distinguished gentlemen too. It's funny because Fred Gwynn, to our listeners, for years I think he was like really embarrassed by being Herman Munster and yet he lives on. And well, they love him. And it was and funny because on the opening day, his first shot, I think he thought that's what I wanted because that's what everyone wanted from him. And he did his first few lines of the judge like Herman Munster. And I was absolutely <laughs> horrified. <laughs> <laughs> and so I called a, a, a coffee break, <laughs> sent everyone off the set, and sat down with Fred and said, Fred, that's not what's happening here. <laughs> and he said, oh, I thought that's what you wanted. And I said, no, definitely not. I want you to, you know, act it. He had range. Oh, I mean, he, he was, it club. wasn't a problem for him. He yeah. just assumed. Yeah. He was yeah. so tired of Herman Munster, but I'm he just sure. assumed that's what everybody hired him for. Poor man. And great yeah. in the role. I must say, the way you cast your films, and I was watching Distinguished Gentlemen this week, too, and, and that cast, too, and Joe Don Baker and Garner and... Uh, and they Cheryl were. Lee Ralph. James Garner was such a gentleman. He was quite elderly, and he was. Uh, we were, took pains to not ask him to the set, not call him in the morning if we weren't going to use him till later in the day, because it's not fair. Mm-hmm. So we called him at seven o'clock in the morning, and then the weather changed, and it was clear we couldn't use him till noon, or so. So I went to him, went to his trailer to apologize. And he wasn't there. So I, and I found him having coffee on the set. 
with the electricians. And uh, and I said, I'm really sorry we're not going to get to you until later in the day. I'm sorry we called you so early. He said, that's fine. I, uh, I act for fun. I get paid for waiting. How about that? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Another very well-cast movie. Thank but, you. By the way, and another movie of yours that's about something. That's yes. about lobbyists and that's Absolutely. about uh, and uh, campaign finance reform. And yes, it's, got it, a, it's, it's all come true. There. It's yeah. all come true. Yeah. Eddie Murphy was great in that film. Gilbert's old friend. Oh, yeah. 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 They were on SNL together. I and, loved working with Eddie. Oh, yeah, and, and we worked together in Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That yeah. was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and also a shout out to the late great Lane Smith, since we're talking about both he of was, both of those movies, yeah. uh, uh, Vinny and uh, and distinguished gentleman. Let's ask you quick. Uh, I also want to recommend to our listeners Greedy, which is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, and you're in it. I'm very proud of Greedy. Uh, that was another one that didn't do well at the box office when it opened. You should because, be. Well, Michael Fox had had done uh, three previous his three previous films had flopped, so. The uh, the studio decided to try and disguise the fact that he was in it, <laughs> so, so his name was very small on the on the um, on the one sheet, and uh, you know they they didn't really, and he was very very good in it. The cast is great. It opens with a Durante tribute. Yeah, and the cast is the cast is great. Yeah, Hartman. Michael was extraordinary. I didn't know at the time he'd already been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and he he kept it from me, um, which made it very hard some days because he found some moves that would be relatively simple for a 32-year-old actor, he found inexplicably hard. I couldn't understand why. So That's he was shame. having trouble physically. Oh, yes. That's a shame. But I didn't know that. He disguised it very, very well. The scene um, where he and Kirk Douglas reenact the Durante dance from his childhood on yes. the stairwell is well, wonderful. That, that took a lot of takes because oh, he couldn't get it right, although it was not very difficult. And I couldn't understand why he couldn't until... Afterwards, when he told me he had Parkinson's, he was extraordinarily brave, and um, yeah, I mean, such a true professional. Nice but to see a, you in that film, by the way, and kind of the old <laughs> Eric Bloor role. <laughs> yes, that was it. The Eric, I, I thought it was the Eric Bloor. Role. I wouldn't have cast myself, but Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel heard me read the part in auditions for other actors, and they said, "Why don't you play it?" And I thought. Okay, if they want me to, you know, they were the writers. Um, and I thought they want me to, sure. I wouldn't have suggested it. Yeah. And how was Kirk Douglas to work? Oh, he was great. In his 70s then? He was about 75, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Good comic performance. And he was, he was wonderful. These old school actors are different from young actors. He, his first take was always, as, was always perfect. He would do two or three takes, and after that he kind of got a bit bored because he'd done it. He was used to delivering right away. Younger actors, other actors in the scenes, would take several takes to get it right, by which time huh. Kirk was kind of had lost interest. <laughs> I'd imagine. <laughs> um, Old but, school. But but he was he was great and very, very funny. I mean, I'd, I'd never... I'd never seen him being funny in a movie, but in real life, he was a really funny man. Full of great stories about Hollywood in the past. I'll bet. I'll bet. I have to recommend that to our listeners too to watch Greedy. A lot of people have seen Clue, but uh, yeah, I like. I, I'm very pleased with. It's Clue. fun and it's got a nice Eric von Stroheim in joke <laughs> in, the, in the characters, <laughs> the characters' names. 
yes. with McTeague. And, and a great cast. Great I mean, cast. A supporting cast. And Ed Begley was here. Ed Begley, he we was terrific. Him. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's so good. Yeah. Uh, and let's plug the book. Let's plug Samaritans, your new novel. Okay. Uh, which is about, because you're a political guy, and it's about the uh, the healthcare system or the uh, the it collapse is. of the health the healthcare system. Yes. Well, of course, it's a. I mean, it's a funny book. I think. Um, in fact, I know it's funny, but it's also scary. Um, it, it. It. I decided to write a book about um, a hospital in Washington D.C. that's beset by rising costs and poor management, like most hospitals, and they decide to hire the CEO of the, of the head of the hotel operations side of a Vegas casino to be the new CEO of the hospital because he understands about beds occupied, check-in and check-out, dinners served, and has absolutely no interest in healthcare. But he really understands how to turn a building into a profitable institution. And that's what he does in the course of the, um, in the, course of the book. And... Uh, what was so strange was I was halfway through writing it when I read that Gary Loveman, who was at that time CEO of Caesar's Palace that was going bankrupt, was hired to be head of Aetna's healthcare division. Wow. Life so, imitating art? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. So, and, you know, the, the book is about how the business school model doesn't work for everything, including healthcare. You know, that it's not everything can be about profit and loss. Some things have to be about actually caring for human beings. Um, it's not a view that's fashionable in Washington right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your writing's been compared to Jonathan Swift, Evelyn Waugh, even Shaw. Not bad company. Very flattering, yes. Yeah. Sounds also like it would make, uh, I haven't read it yet, and I, I promise to, uh, that it sounds like it would make a good black comedy. Maybe like well, Arthur Hiller's The Hospital? I can't say much about this, but there is a negotiation going oh, on. Oh, wonderful. To make it into a TV series, which I think would be perfect for it. And you are the man who wrote Doctor in the house, so you... Yes, but I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> be the showrunner. I'm too old to be a showrunner, I think. Um, you know, it's the hours are impossible. Mm -hmm. I'm, I would just be an executive producer and have be cons consulted about things. Okay. I would like that. <laughs> so you are you planning any other films? Yes, I have two films that I've written that that are both have producers and are seeking funds. Wonderful, but we'll see. Okay, <laughs> you're still going, Jonathan. Oh yes, uh, it's been well, a long journey. And well, you're still it, plugging. There's nothing. That's what I do. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. That's what I do. I get up in the morning and I go to my desk, unless I'm shooting something and I, or directing a play, and I write something because that's. Wonderful. It's an addiction, really. I, I think it's it's a habit. It's admirable. Well, it's not really. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just to get out of it, just to have something to do. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank... I mean, I don't play golf, you know. I mean, what else do you do at my age? I want to thank, too, our mutual pal, Rick Unger, for, for, for introducing oh, us and, yes. and helping make this interview happen. Oh, well, yes, it's good. We love Rick. Yes, absolutely. And it's 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 been fantastic. There's so much that we didn't get to because it's been such a long career. I mean, we barely touched on Clue. I'm talking too much. I'm no, sorry. no, yeah. there's so much there. And and this we have to use our cliche. We barely scraped the well, surface. You're a fun guest <laughs> to research. I <laughs> yeah. mean, and we didn't get into, of course, the you know your iconic series. Yes, yes, minister and yes, prime minister and and all of that other stuff. But come back and we'll do another one. 
I'll be happy to. It's been great fun. Thank you. Talk about David Lean and Hitchcock and and Wilder (laughs) and your your favorite movies. Sure. And Gilbert will tell you his insane theory about Sunset Boulevard. Oh, can I hear it now? (laughs) Okay, yeah, let's hear it now. Okay. (laughs) This, This is a story I heard recently. I mean, about, I don't know, a year or two ago. That... According to this story, women back then, rich women in crazy Hollywood, were would buy chimps. And, and in the movie, she has a funeral for a chimp that she's in love with. And according you to... You know where he's going with this, John? No, I don't. According <laughs> to the story, these, tri- these chimps were trained to perform cunnilingus on these old rich women. I would have thought that would be very dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, chimps are are quite hostile animals. They're vicious (laughs) animals. Yeah, these women must have been absolutely nuts. (laughs) It it must have been the excitement and the danger that maybe... It stems from this notion that Wilder supposedly, if you believe this, gave Gloria Swanson a direction. Yeah, he said to her, he goes... Remember, you're you're you are fucking the chimp. Allegedly, that was the direction he gave her. And we'll never know. Well, we'll never know. Will we? <laughs> you know, Izzy Diamond's gone. They're all gone. <laughs> bracket. I guess Bracket wrote that one. But <laughs> so this is called the um, the Cunnilingus Chimps. We've nicknamed this is theory. The show. Yeah, they were the the Lost Ed Sullivan Act. The color the Cunnilingus <laughs> yes. Chimps. <laughs> Let's see, reason to have you back. Well, I, and, I, I and more to that. talk about. When yeah, you're sure. more educated on the Cunnilingus chimps, we'll have you back. Oh, well, I still more to learn about them. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I also want to plug your comedy rules book, which we've touched on here, but which was just a lot of fun and oh, valuable good. to myself as a comedy writer, I think to anybody that wants to be in comedy. Oh, good. It's it's lessons learned over over your career, over a lifetime of having done this. It's, yeah, um, it is. It was just, it was, uh, somebody asked me to write a book about the rules of comedy, and I said, I can't do it, there aren't any. And then I was teaching at AFI, and I realized that what I was saying to the students was something like the rules of comedy. So I, I phoned the publisher back and said, I can't write about the rules of comedy, but I can write about my rules of comedy. So that's what it is. And then they said, that's not, I, they said, how long is it going to be? And I said, oh, 10 pages, maybe. You know, like Elmore Leonard's book about the 10 rules of writing. And they said, no, no, it's got to be a book. <laughs> it's got to be a whole book. Can you fill it out with stories about how you found these rules? So that's how the book. Yeah, it's filled with great stories. Can, can you share some of them? With like William Goldman's right book, really. Screen tra- Adventures in the Screen Trade. It reads like that. Yeah. Yes. Rules plus Well, that's a an- great compliment. Thank rules you. plus anecdotes. Yes. Yeah. Can, can you tell us just a handful of these rules? Oh, gosh. Um, I wrote it some years ago. Well, we mentioned, too, you said that all comedy people, all comedians were angry people. Yes. And, and that uh, there's no such thing as bad taste. And the third one that stuck with me was that all comics fear the audience. Well, that's right. That's why they have to kill them. <laughs> 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 <That's>, <laughs> 
as kill or be killed, right? Yes. Here's a man who goes up every night, every week, well, yeah, in front that, of a live yeah, audience. Kill or be killed. Yeah. Yeah. You've just got to kill them. And, you know, it's not enough. A draw is not a suitable outcome. It's not satisfactory for anybody. <laughs> It's a wonderful read, and I can't wait to read Samaritans. Good. I, and hope, I hope you it enjoy turns it. into a series. Okay, so? so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we have been talking to the great Jonathan Lynn. Jonathan, this was fun and entertaining and educational too. Well, thank you very much. It was fun for me. As was doing the research. You guys are fun to talk to. Thanks. So to our listeners, read Comedy Rules, see Greedy and Distinguished Gentlemen. And I know they've seen other ways. And learn about cunnilingus chimps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not in any of my writing. (laughs) Just want to make that clear. That's Gilbert. (laughs) Thank you, Jonathan. If she could, she would loosen a notch in the Bible bed. There's a lot of good people who are led astray that believe true love is dead. But I tell you something, brother, when you're dealing with your feelings, it's tough to keep a level head. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance.